This is the Blattcast, a sometimes fast-paced but usually meandering look at the world, hosted by Christian Blatt. Today, we're celebrating 10 years of the Blattcast with big-time celebrity guest Dana Carvey. So kick back, get ready for quite possibly the longest one hour to perhaps the shortest two hours and 56 minutes of your life. And now, here's Christian Blatt. Thank you, Farad Muhammad. Yes, this is indeed a very special 10th anniversary Blattcast. I'm honored and I'm privileged to be able to present you with 80 minutes of conversation with uh, actor, comedian, podcast host, one of the all-time Saturday Night Live greats, and if you ask my pal Dennis Miller, the best cast member in the history of that show. Yes, it's the one, the only, the church lady, the grumpy old man, Franz, Garth himself, Mr. Dana Carvey. Dana was so kind and so generous to spend more than an hour chatting with me. I really can't wait to share that conversation, so I won't. Dana Carvey, welcome to the Blackcast. Thank you for helping us celebrate 10 years. Man, so you predate or overlap when you were Dennis Miller's producer. You were yeah, well, on I, always having your own podcast. Yeah, I started doing the Black Cast. Uh, it, it was a very specific moment where I was like, oh, I can do this. I grew up, always listened to Howard Stern. I've heard you on there a few times. You're fantastic. Now, I uh, never for a second thought I was uh, anywhere near as talented as Howard Stern. But when he got his own channel and they started having the super fan show, the after show, and then the after show to the after show, I was like, well, I could do that. You know, I'm at least I'm I'm at least as as entertaining as Baba Bowie, uh, maybe not as much as John Hine. So I started <laughs> the idea for the show was it was going to be about the Dennis Miller show. And we did it for the website and that lasted like two weeks. And then we just kind of talked about whatever was going on in pop culture, trying to make each other laugh and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. But mm -hmm. it started as the idea was, uh, oh, it's like for fans of the Dennis Miller show, if you want a little something extra, if you like us right. who you hear behind the scenes mm -hmm. and uh the one smart thing i did in the early episodes i probably did this for most of the first year we would have what we called the the dmz spotlight the dmz was the premium membership for the radio show so if you were a regular caller or somebody who posted a lot it's like be a guest on our show and it was like oh do you want to hear your friend who calls in do you want to learn more about gene in philly everyone wanted to learn more about gene in philly apparently so I don't know. That was that was my branding. And, uh, hmm. uh, you know, it was doing the podcast for one year uh, where I suddenly started to feel I got delusions of grandeur, Dana. I was like, well, that is a sick. I can fill in. It'll be all right. <laughs> you know, and uh, I did that a few times. I was uh, I guest hosted a nationally syndicated radio show for 300 stations, uh, you know, big markets, some of them. Did, so did, uh, your nerves the first time you did that was you very first time it was uh last minute because Dennis was sick mm -hmm. and uh, our regular guest hosts were out but we'd had a couple of good guests booked so I I talked to my boss I was like uh, let me give it a try if it's bad after the first hour we'll go to a, a best of and um because Dennis having come from television, he was used to having really detailed prep for all of his guests to the extent that I would put sample questions in there. Years right. later, I realized that oh, most people in radio don't do that. Uh, you know, Howard probably does, but most everybody else doesn't. But uh, so I'm like, well, I've got the questions for literally for everybody, you know? So it was like, 
the who's the guy who did uh, raindrops keep falling on my head? BJ number Bert Baker. That would have been great. The guy who sang it though. Oh uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Some BJ, not BJ, BJ Novak because he's from the office, but like BJ Ryan. So I was like, I know what to talk to him about, you know. So it uh, it was all right. It wasn't like a super heavy political show, and uh, I kind of BSed my way through it. And for ten years, I've been BSing my way through my own podcast. And uh, I know that uh, you're a new entrant into the world of podcasting, but uh, for I, I don't think it's weird for me to promote your podcast because I think people know it at this point. You know, that's like if, yes. you know, if if it's like promoting, you know, McCartney's new album, it's like, you know, he's got one. It's OK. Well, you know, it's like, it's hey, not- Bruce Springsteen's out on tour. Do you want to go buy tickets? You already did. But I'm fly sorry, on a wall. Sorry, those five thousand dollars a seat, but I, I don't got nothing to do with the tickets. I told Obama he can get four for Cleveland. <laughs> Thank you very much. No, it's a uh, the uh, it's interesting. Um, the Howard Stern of it all, like, okay, what is he doing? You know, first of all, fly on the wall. Thank you very much. But it's been one year uh, in in a few weeks, and everyone I talked to is like, wow, it's tough. You know, like if we'd gone in and. I'm not sure the exact numbers. They started in 2018. I guess you started in 2013. 2018, maybe there was 700,000 podcasts. Now there's 3 million. And it's much <laughs> harder to land and grab. And it was just whimsical that now, you know, it's different because I have a true, and he has, we're, we're true co-hosts. So it's different. So you're a one-man band. You don't have a, a pithy sidekick or a a woman, no, in- but I, I, I have like a peanut gallery. I have like, uh, you know, the other guys who I used to work with on the radio show, but they're not with me every show. But yeah, you right. it's you and and David Spade, uh, a.k.a. Spudley, uh, mm-hmm. that uh, you guys do the show together. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you could both have hosted your own podcast. That wouldn't have been that's that sounds like a backhanded compliment, but I mean it well. And uh, instead, it's like, yeah, just put them together. And let's have them talk to you know people about SNL. And I mean, you've watched it go from like, oh yeah, let's talk to people who we know who were on the show. Dennis did a great episode. Uh, Colin Quinn, who I know really well. But then it's like, oh, McCartney's going to be on. So uh, what's it like to have it go from like, let's talk about SNL with people who were on the show to, oh, you want to talk to a Beatle? Well, it was... Uh... You know, we also really wanted Lorne Michaels, you know, obviously, who doesn't do much. He did do a Mark Marin podcast like six years ago or something like that, which I listened to just to get a vibe. I know Lorne very well, but it was nice. He came on. The Paul thing was just it was just sort of like, oh, we need a musician. And um, our mutual manager, Matt Gervitz. Anyway, he said, will you write Paul? Gervitz. Will you write Paul an email asking him? I hate to do that stuff. He goes, I know his assistant, get it to her. I mean, she'll just hand it to him. So I just wrote him one, dear Paul, I'd met him in New York a little bit. I met him at Lauren Michaels house. I first got the show, but he meets a lot of people, you know, Um, he gave me on the 40th, 2016, he was in the audience when I was doing Chopping Broccoli uh, on N88H, the television special, just for your listeners or viewers. Um, 
and I started playing for no one, the little, your day breaks, your mind aches, you think that all you... So he stood up, this is during the commercial break, and I got the piano for Chopin Broccoli. He goes, I know what you're doing. And he did the six shooters, whatever that means. Tom Hanks stood up, Jimmy Fallon. So then after the show, we did Wayne's World at the end, me and Mike Myers, and we're off to the side in the Mount Rushmore of you know, Bill Murray, Steve Martin are over there. Suddenly someone is massaging my neck and it was Paul. You seem a bit tight, Dane, you know. So I sent him this email and I didn't know if it was like, what, who, who wrote Twist and Chow, you know, whatever. So I just said, we can talk about your friendship with Lorne because they're really good friends and your appearances on uh, SNL. And then like I'm on vacation in Wyoming with my mother-in-law, my wife and one of my sons. And Gerbit says, Paul can come on Friday. And it's like Wednesday. We had, we, had, we weren't in a fancy hotel. We had no Wi-Fi. I had to go to the Four Seasons in the Grand Tetons and a lightning storm the night before to get good Wi-Fi. So then I'm, I, I can't believe it. I'm going to have Paul McCartney on the Zoom. Yeah. Spade is in New York. He's having technical issues for a half hour. People coming in and out of his hotel room. Not sure he's going to make it. Suddenly it's Paul. I'm thinking erroneously that he had read the email and don't ask him about the Beatles. He might get upset. So I'm just trundling along with them. And we, I talked about touring and then finally I brought up get back. Cause I realized he, I don't think he'd done a podcast since I came out. So then he really wanted to talk about get back and that yeah, emancipated the, 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 the Peter Jackson documentary, not just the song. But, Sorry. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's for everybody else. But uh, yeah, no, no. I mean, for those of us who, uh, you know, when it premiered and we're like, well, this is eight hours, but I, I guess I'm not going to sleep, you know, because uh, it was, uh, it was so, it was so crazy. Cause it's like people, you know, other musicians and different kinds of music, everybody just sort of watching that process, you know, Paul sits down and he's like, Oh yeah, I'm working on something. And you're like, fucking hate you that he's working on you know <laughs> i know they become and he said he would kind of soft pedal it to the to the yeah. guys you know yeah I'm trying a little something here but um at one point i took a chance i said did john lennon ever thank you for his bass lines <laughs> you know <laughs> and so then after that he got really excited and so we found yeah. our way to come together and how john wanted it up fast and he said, let's slow it down. And he wrote that bass part. And what I realized later, now that you're into this too, is when people have a little bit of, there's the truth and then there's what people think. But forensically for Beatle fanatics, it's like Paul and John, like we know it's a John song, but did Paul write the middle eight on no reply? Did What did he think when the baseline for Dear Prudence, did they talk about, I like it, you know, so that's endlessly fascinating because it's like trying to catch the wind. You never know. But here's my last epiphany. I'll let you comment was that if I present it to Paul, like, did he thank you for baselines? Then Paul can answer about his baselines. But if he brings it up, you know, I wrote some really great baselines for John songs. He would never do that as a liver public yeah. gentleman. So that's all. If you just ask it as a fan, then it opens a door for him. So we had a very nice last 20 minutes of talking about them playing and get back. And their, the, his main thing was them laughing, seeing them, him and John laughing and joking around. But I think that Paul was in the lead at that given point in time. And all yeah. the seedlings for Abbey Road were kind of played around with. 
you know, you don't, you never give me your money. And even George is going something in the way. What do you think the next line is? So that's fascinating. Anyway. No, it, it is. And it's interesting because it wasn't until after I watched it that somebody pointed out like, well, you know, John and Yoko were, uh, let's just say allegedly uh, trying to kick heroin at the time. And that's why he's always late. And I'm like, Oh, I didn't know that when I watched it, but all of a sudden those little pieces start to come in and it's like, well, John's not here. And then just the very matter of fact way that George is like, well, I'll be leaving then, you know, <laughs> it's like, did he just quit the Beatles? And, and like, I, I think he did. And then they have to put it on the screen. I'm like, okay, yeah, he did quit. <laughs> but, uh, and, uh, you know, Ringo's just like, yeah, man, I'm just here to have some fun. This is great. But, uh, uh um, Look, I could talk to you about Get Back for an hour, but I'll talk about the one thing that's really stood out as my favorite, which was, uh, I guess it was uh, Linda's daughter. So I guess her name would have been Heather Eastman. Yeah. Yeah. And And she's so little in that. And she's just jumping up and sitting at the piano. And I'm just like watching him with this little girl. And I'm just like, this is the sweetest thing I've ever seen. You see so much stuff with the Beatles, but I'd never seen anything like that. And I was just like, I didn't, I didn't know I could love Paul McCartney more, but there it was, you know. Well, and, uh, yeah. you get adrenalized when he's in the hallway and he's throwing her way up in the air like dads do and yeah. catching her, but really high. Yeah. You're like, damn. <laughs> like, yeah, like I like I throw my daughter. My daughter's five. She's very little. I do that. And uh, my wife's like, oh, OK, OK, that's enough. And you know? they love it. They go crazy for yeah. it. So how do you um, yeah. Well, yeah. we've uh, we've already referenced our uh, mutual friend, Mr. Dennis Miller, and I actually want to start with that because you probably know this, but it's fascinating that there are not that many Saturday Night Live auditions that you can find on YouTube. Yours is one of them. Uh, Hartman's is another one. And uh, but in yours, in like the first minute before you go into some impressions, I guess Dennis is sitting there when you audition for SNL. Yeah. And before you do anything as part of your actual audition, you do the Dennis impression, which you don't do on the show for like years, because let's be honest, at that point he was on SNL. People didn't really know him so much in like 1986. I didn't so know it wasn't really. I, I've never watched it. So I didn't know. Oh that. my gosh. Yeah. So it's, uh, you're, <laughs> you're, you're just, you know, it's like, yeah, you, you do him, you know, so you're like, yeah, Carvey, give him the Robin Leach, you know, something like that. And so you do the Robin Leach impression, but you're like making everyone laugh because it's like, oh, this guy does a Dennis Miller impression. Oh, yeah. You know? Interesting. Yeah, I didn't do it for a long time until somehow Dennis and I, I guess, kind of decided I would go on update as him. Yeah. You know, his, his doppelanger. And and, yeah. and like so much of it is the voice. But uh, if you see that, it's like you have to have that like sneer. Because it's like the voice goes a long way, but it's like you got to look like him. And it's like, yeah, you always kind of had that. You'd be tapping the pencil and, uh, you know, you would say things that say, you know, when you said before, I'm up in the Grand Tetons. It's like, yeah, that's the kind of thing that uh, that Dennis would say, you know. And so my real question is, how long did you know him that, uh, you know, you'd you'd worked up a little bit of a Dennis impression? I know it's funny. We met. um, I was playing i was headlining the san jose improv at the time uh, i don't think it's the new ones like 400 seats but it was a pretty big it was a big gig i think it was like you know 82 or something like that and i was i think either i'm so i think either he picked me up at the airport or i picked him up <laughs> and i met him and anyway so he's my opener right because i was kind of a big shot in the bay area Right. And so I wouldn't pay much 
attention of my middle. I was in pretty good shape at that point. I was still fledgling, but, and then uh, I'd hear some vibrations and some roars coming from the room. It was like, and then I would go on stage and I realized that my normal shtick wasn't quite working because Dennis is, he had that, his energy was so potent when he caught the audience, you, you, you couldn't just go up and do something else. You right. know, you'd have to kind of deal with that energy. So we got to know each other then. And then I ran into him at the Comedy Magic Club. And I remember when he was on SNL, I was somewhere driving somewhere, might have been Kevin Pollack or Kevin Nealon, one of the Kevins and Dennis. And he was telling me how terrifying the nerves of being on SNL. So this is 85. Yeah. I get on unbeknownst to me the year next year. Christ sakes, Carby. I mean, you know, it's a death machine over there. All right. You get one shot or you're out. And so that rhythm and attitude was so infectious, you know, that I, I still like doing. I like doing the tight muttering Dennis now, tight jaw. Okay. I'll let you do down there, Chris. Okay. Interviewing Carvey again. All right. I did it about 1900 times. You got that many to go. Just that sort of rhythm. Yeah. He's got a lot of sub rhythms. It's John Lovitz is another one. I know. Yeah. Happy. I know. You know, some character voices these two guys have, man. And, uh, you know, Lovitz obviously having a renaissance right now uh, because of the uh, the Long Island congressman. Uh, the well, he the, went on Fallon. Has he done yeah. more stuff with it? I mean, is he well, he did that, and then he he was on Howard for a little bit, and he did that. But then he also did uh, what in the old days they would have called panel. But then he did interview as Lovitz, and it was great. I've known John nowhere near as long as you, but I've known him for a while, and I'm always telling him like, you know, like you have all these stories. Why are you not podcasting? He was kind enough to do my 500th episode last year. And I was like, John, I'll talk to you for an hour. And at like 90 minutes, I'm like, uh, okay, well, you know, I'll wrap it up. He's like, I don't have anywhere to go. I'm like, I'll keep talking to you. You know, <laughs> it was, uh, but he's so, you know, and it's, it's so funny though, because uh, yeah, no. And it was great though. I mean, it's, uh, it's so funny to, you know, and he's obviously very honest. You know, one of the things that he talked about since we're talking about Lovitz was uh, the movie that you guys did together uh, with Nicolas Cage. And I guess he was very upfront about how he did not like the uh, the director and uh, Nicolas yeah. Cage didn't like that director and just like the movie never had a chance. But uh, what uh, do you have any specific memories? The movie's called Trapped in Paradise. Perhaps not everyone's seen it, but uh, my friend Bill, it's one of his favorite movies of all time. So that's why I always like he, he'll be so well, disappointed if I don't ask you about it. It had all the elements except the... Um... I didn't really know what I was doing, and that's a longer story, but I liked Nicolas Cage. I thought he was a really cool actor. So Nicolas yeah. Cage is going to be in it. And then I always had fun with John, and uh, and so I thought, well, it'd be nice, to, uh, the three of us, Christmas movie, you know. When you read the script or we're inside the script, um, the tone of it, like apparently the director wanted it to be Pesci, De Niro, and like walking or something right. three real new york tough guys so then he gets two comedians and nicholas cage so i was going to dailies because you know those guys could sleep in all the ad kids with me in canada so i was up early anyway so i went to some of the dailies and we had these two characters kind of tagging us detectives and they were great actors. They were just directed to play it very broad, almost like a cartoon characters. 
So once you didn't have a straight line, you know, that really kind of upended things a little bit. So movies mostly don't work. Sometimes there's for a lot of different reasons, but I was pretty sure at that point it wasn't going to work. So when I saw that, those guys doing cartoon characters, I decided to do a cartoon character myself, which was the character Alvin, I think. Or So I did sort of um, Mickey Rourke combined with Brad Gray, my manager at the time. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I just... I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're saying. And it kind of broke my heart because I, I did have some amazing runs from my point of view as that character. Right. They're in prison and I do a giant thing. He, he's They ask him a question, but he has a jawbreaker in his mouth and it takes him like a minute and a half to get the jawbreaker out. But then when I saw the edit, like as you maybe know from movies, this is old time movies. When you go to dailies, you see the master shot. You see everything. That's so funny. Then you see it later cut together. So that one minute, say, say it was one minute and it was really funny, I I believe, was cut down to two seconds. Right. So in the editing or whatever. So um, it was just kind of a a train wreck, but it has fun elements. The characters are really likable. The snow looks real. And there was some great townspeople playing straight to us. So it still has some core things that are charming. It's a little frustrating with a rewrite and a little bit of different direction and just a quick rewrite to for clarity and have a looser edit on it. Not so, it, it probably could have been a really good movie. <laughs> right. I mean, I think that uh, a lot of times, you know, just as, as viewers in the audience, a lot of times you'll see a movie and you you go like, you know, I mostly liked it. It was almost there. And, you know, you don't think about what it was missing, but a lot of times there was something else. Uh, another movie I wanted to ask you about that I haven't heard you uh, talk about. You did a movie with Richard Pryor called Moving, which he did not like. But uh, did uh, how was it to work? This is fairly late in his career, but how was that to get a chance to work with, you know, one of the all time greats? Uh, freaky deaky, beyond the beyond. <laughs> I did a bit in my special about my first encounter with Richard Pryor was, I was his waiter at the Holiday Inn uh, in uh, Belmont, California. I was, you know, and he was uh, playing the local theater, the Circle Star Theater. So I brought him the Denver omelet and all that. So I'd met him then. And then I'm on SNL maybe for six months. And this, I can't remember the name of the director, sorry, uh, asked me to do it and said, well, we won't, we'll, we'll let you just improvise your, your lines kind of, you have a, I, I played a schizophrenic right. where Richard Pryor is sort of the straight lace family guy. And he hires me to drive his car across country. And so two things, one was I'm doing this scene with Richard and the director pulls me aside and goes, Richard, it's really hard to get Richard going. He said, he wants to signal to the audience that this is just a paycheck. I'm not going to go for it. So he said, can you try to get Richard going? I go, fuck, really? Try to get Richard going. So then I start really pushing a lot of energy. I can't remember what is that, you know, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. But finally, Richard started to kind of, yeah, what's your name, young man? You know, that kind of thing. So then I got him going. And then one time I went during lunch hour, the the whole set's like a ghost town. I went in the wrong trailer. I thought it was some other makeup trailer. And so then he was sitting in there. Maybe it was the makeup trailer in the dark by himself with like Kleenex around his neck. Cause he has makeup, you know, sure. the scars from the, and then we had a nice 
Nice chat there. Very sensitive uh, guy. Um, very soft-spoken, super sincere, super curious about me. How are you, young man? What's what's going on? You know, so. Um, but it was it was a fun part. I mean, I ran into Eddie Murphy at the mall with Lovitz uh, at some point during the that after that movie came out, and he goes, you know, you know Dana, don't you? And Eddie just goes, yeah, I know him from uh, Richard's movie, moving, yeah. So that right. was, oh yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, one of my, uh, one of my favorite, uh, moments of, uh, you know, just referencing to, uh, Eddie Murphy and my understanding is that they're okay now, but years after, uh, Spade said what he said about, uh, about oh, Eddie Murphy on SNL, like, Oh, look, a falling star. And, uh, he called in and, you know, yelled at him, but like years later, uh, I think I heard Spade tell the story. Chris Rock had mentioned, you know, he he was at something with Eddie and Spade was like, okay. And he's like, and he still hates you. <laughs> and that went on for a little while, but uh, it's uh, it's funny, you know, I guess when you think about being on that show, all the people that uh, have come before you, for me, I was like in middle school when you guys were on. So it's, okay. uh, it's a very biased opinion to me. It's like, I think it's easy to say like Dennis was the best person, the funniest person that ever sat at that desk. And you and Phil Hartman, to me personally, two of the best cast members they ever had. You know, it was really like, you know, Dennis would always say like the 27 Yankees, though. It's like just this murderer's row of all these great, you know, and I don't want to leave anybody out. Like Jan Hooks was also so great, you know, in that cast. And, you know, you just had all those great people, but you're still like you're still on after the originals and Eddie and all of that. Uh, when you actually start on the show, you know, Dennis had told you that there were nerves. Yeah. Were you maybe not smart enough to have those nerves or did you feel the same thing? Did Dennis kind of put it in your head like, oh, I'm supposed to be nervous? I was t I was absolutely fighting my nerves like crazy, uh, especially yeah. the very first show, because all of a sudden I'm in church lady moves up front. I do um, an alien Sigourney Weaver's the host. So I do an alien sketch. I do chop and broccoli. I'm in the cold opening game show psychic with Jill. Jill. Jan and uh, Phil. And um, so I was terrified, you know, because yeah. I'd auditioned for the show three times. I'm 31 years of age. Uh, this is what I understand. The show only had an eight show pickup because this 85 was a disaster. Besides Dennis and Lovitz and Nora Dunn were brought back. Yeah. Well, they they literally had the studio catch on fire. And I talked to Lovitz about. Yeah. This. Yeah. You know, they, the end of that season is like. And and uh, Lauren is like, no, not you, John. You get in the car. You get in the limo, I think. So the idea was like everybody else was burning. And it's like, it's fascinating because when you see who's in that cast, you can sort of understand why it didn't work. But, I mean, it's Robert Downey Jr. It's uh, Randy Quaid. It's, uh, you know. Uh, you did have Nora Dunn and you had, you had Love yeah. It. Yeah, and, and, but it's like obviously you know as brilliant as uh, robert downey jr goes on to be even in the short term after that it's like it yeah, probably not the best fit and i mean the show's kind of filled with those people i mean while you were on i think ben stiller was on for like three weeks maybe you know <laughs> kind so, of yeah yeah it's one of those deals you know so what do you think it is about that place that some people arrive there other people you know maybe need a little time and then they they can do well there uh, but uh, that just some people are like, oh, this doesn't work. I mean, there was another season after you left, which is the 94, 95 season where they brought in like Chris Elliott and Michael McKeon and Janine Garofalo 
And it's like, these are all really funny, talented people. I think Michael McKeon did fine. But, you know, it was like Janine Garofalo in particular was apparently miserable from what she said about it. And you're like, it's not that she's not funny. I mean, Sarah Silverman was on and like barely had sketches, you know? What do you think it is? These are quiet, you know, quasi-cerebral comedians. I I think there's a lot of things about it, but I I think it's kind of a, a rock and roll room. Um, when they did, um, Anna Gostar and Molly Shannon did the very quiet NPR women sweaty balls. Oh, yeah. But that was at home base, which means right in the center of the studio, you can really sense the audience and they can hear you. And so that kind of broke the rule, but it's kind of a rock and roll room. And, you know, Phil knew how to like hit it if he needed to. What's the one on that straight? You know, like energy, love it. Hang now, you know. And there's a lot of ambient noise. Like the cold opening, generally everything stops. Like when I'm doing Bush Senior, finally the studio goes quiet. But throughout the show, right after the commercial break, there might still be off to the side stuff's being moved or the camel's being brought in, you know? There's ambient noise and distractions. So I do think that um, home base and, and scoring like that, like Sandler with Opera Man at home base, singing so loud and energy and stuff so that some people i think if they're more like jazz players or whatever um and dennis you know his his references are genius but he also had a really strong voice you know checking over here okay it was and and so that's but you know when you when i got on it or anyone gets on it you just don't know till you do it am i really gonna you know i did my 10,000 hours in clubs and I was harvesting my act. Basically I'd done the whole church lady as part of my standup and said, well, isn't that special? And once that got a laugh, nothing else could have got my blood pressure to go down more than that. Cause I knew, Oh, I know where I am now, you know, but still luck, whimsy, ridiculousness. Uh, who's in the cast? If you come in later, there's 20 people ahead of you. You're 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 sitting on the bench watching the All Stars go on for many many seasons. Yeah, you know, ten years, twelve years. So it, whimsical, really. Yeah, no, there would be times where I mean, even in like recent years, you feel like when they they count the sort of like you know, there's like the. Don Pardo would do the really big extra breath and featuring. And you're like, oh my God, there's like eight more people, you know? I know. Yeah. And I know. Um, go on and on and on and on. Yeah. Uh, That's the thing. I came in with just me, Phil, and John were the, the main three male players. And yeah. then we had, you know, Victoria, Jan, and Nora. Yeah. And then we had Kevin. And, and, and Dennis would show up if there was going to be a waiter in the sketch. You know, it would yes. be like, you know, it's like, well, somebody has to, you know, say like, Here, can I get you your drink, sir? And, that, and then he'd have to go like run and get ready for a thing, you know? <laughs> yes. But a lot of nights, which I tell him, I go, a lot of nights, it just doesn't work. Everyone remembers the best shows. Sure. And we, we were just struggling to get to the mid midway of, you know, update. And then Dennis would bail us out or he would crush and bring up the studio, you know? So it's, it's, it's a fever dream, really. Like, what did that really happen? <laughs> you know, it's such an intense experiential thing, live TV. And people come in on now, like I had to think of Ackroyd, Belushi, that those rock star badass, you know, pirates basically, the first yeah. cast, you know, rock stars, superstars. 
and then Billy Crystal and Christopher Guest, and Dennis and stuff, and Eddie Murphy, of course, the savant, you know, at 19. Yeah. That good's not doesn't make any sense. So by the time I got there, I had that to follow. But now people have like they got to follow Bill Hader. They got to follow Will Ferrell, <laughs> Chris Rock. I mean, it's just like it's it's interesting what the new cast is probably going through now. But right. Exactly. I mean, because like, you know, now you have people who you know weren't alive for the show's like 20th anniversary season, you know, <laughs> have like people who like grew up with people who are long long uh, after the fact and you know, you know you can obviously see all of it um you've talked a little bit about the church lady and i was just sort of wondering you know at at that time you know it, it's a very religious character you're doing a parody of you know sort of something that was prevalent on tv at the time it, was there negative reaction to it from the ultra right or was it cartoony enough that it was like oh we all we all love the lady oh, they I, love, believe, they uh, love. I believe farley was the one who called her the lady right well the first day chris rock came in with chris farley i think and then they just long story short started calling me the lady right and still would call me lady now if chris comes on our podcast lady and and chris rock and chris farley so any cast member named chris would call me the lady <laughs> But um, there was no no pushback. It was just uh, everyone loved the character. You know, the Bible Belt loved it, I think, because it was silly enough and it was not what was popular at the time was doing the fire and brimstone preacher as a stand up. Right. And I will heal me, brother. You know, that thing was going on. So my little lane was the women behind the punch bowl with the orthopedic shoes, completely androgynous, who really run the church. Right. Uh, and the holier the, than thou part was so extreme. The, the trap of, wow, and you did this, you did this, you know, who could it be? Satan with the echo and yeah. then the superior dance. So I think it was fanciful enough and it probably never it wasn't in my mindset to kind of try to satire ultra Christians at all. Right. No, it's, it's more like people who go to, it's not even just church. There really is that person. And I think. It it started without church, by the way. Oh, so. so It was really one of the first things I did uh, was the patronizing uh, second grade school teacher who feels superior. So I'd have a little piece of paper. Let's make a little sailboat. So it's the exact same character. Right. A and then B and yours isn't quite as good as mine. So the character came from that and then eventually evolved into religiosity. What uh, what I always liked is uh, sort of like the, you know, before she really goes in for the kill, you know, the, there's always that moment where she's like, we like ourselves, don't we? You know, before she gets to what she really wants to say, you know, there's sort of like, uh, you know, when she'd be talking to like Jessica Hahn or someone like that, you know, and uh, I always uh, I always found it to be great. Now, obviously, you get that character. Hans and Franz is another big one. There's there's so many. Did you get to a point on the show where it was like, all right, I'm I'm going to do one of these and it's not going to get cut. It, it's it's going to be in the show or did it would it happen? You know, I mean, I, I was there as an intern, so there was like one half a year where I would see what happened between dress rehearsal and air. And a lot of times it didn't make sense, but you'd sort of be like, okay, but the main characters, the big recurring characters are always kind of their sketches aren't going to get cut, but would that happen sometimes like a, 
Hey, yeah. you know, the, the lady didn't work th- as well this week, this Hans and Franz, you know, was missing something or was it always like, we want it on the air. So we're going to make it work. Well, just taking, I mean, one part of that would be, um, or say Arnold was around and he's going to sure. be on Hans and Franz. So it's getting, right. you know, I think that Hans and Franz was a show where we, we could bring in a guest star as well. And that would seal the deal. Church Lady, I accidentally fell into something that Lauren loves. So it's a talk show where I could score. Victoria Jackson was the sidekick at most of the time. She was hysterical, crying. Well, no, Church Lady, you know, calm down. And and then we'd have Phil come in and Jan or other or Sean Penn came in. What happened freakily during that year, there were several, a couple of big religious scandals. So then you know, uh, can't remember the name, the Reverend, whatever. So then Phil would play that there's guy. A, there's Jeremy Swagger, uh, yeah. uh, Falwell. Yeah, there were a few of those. Yeah, I think that, Al Franken uh, played Falwell and then Phil played Swagger. Anyway, so yeah, yeah. everything came together with that. Uh, I think more like Lovitz and I, John really wanted us to get a thing together, right? So I don't know if we came up with that. We came up with Billionaire Bus Boys. Did he ever tell you that? No, I don't think I've heard of that one. So John and I are getting, we do it in Reetha. We're playing Billionaire Bus Boys. So there's a theme song to it. Billionaire Bus Boys, Billionaire Bus Boys, just like you and me. You can see how happy John, Billionaire Bus Boys, Billionaire Bus Boys. They are so carefree. They will clean your table ready, when they're ready and able. Billionaire Bus Boys, Billionaire Bus just like you and me except they're billionaires. It's very, so then we're in a restaurant, we can get fired. We have 24 hours to get another job. So we're just, we sit down, people and we're eating their food and yelling at them, it's just ridiculous. So carefree billionaires, that never got on. We had another one, we tried another one, you couldn't do now, but John and I are test pilots from India, you know, talking like this, you can, you know, so we're like, okay. And then there's a button, what does this button do? And then John would go, I don't know. And then I say, well, we better push it. So we push it. We'd go into a nosedive. And then Phil would come in as the, the Air Force colonel. I don't think he had an accent. What the hell's going on up here? That didn't get on. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's uh yeah, there's and there's uh I did talk to Lovitz about the thing that uh, he and Phil had done in the groundlings first. The chick hazard, the sort of oh, yeah. the old time. You're like, you know, don't beat around the bush. Tell me what it is. And he's like, you're th- you know, that whole thing. No, that was you're fired. no give it to me straight. That's all they did was talk like gangsters to the point where one of our producers, Dinah Minot, said, is that all they do? I go, I don't know. I just met them, but they're constantly going, what are you saying? Come here, fellas. But that's enough. Uh, You referenced uh, some things that uh, wouldn't fly now. Of course, there's a few of those from anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I feel like, you know, there can't be the appreciation that there was for a, a character that never was never huge, but he was on a few times. Was uh, I, I believe his name was King Chang, the who had the the chicken yeah. make a lousy house pet, and uh, you know, and it's like okay, it's very funny. You can sort of understand that. And then for me, I always thought Lyle the effeminate heterosexual was just it was just this great concept, you know, that he sounded the way he did, but it's such a broad character. Uh, how is it to sort of think back on like? These are these are great things, but I guess people will probably never see them at this point, you know, and maybe maybe they shouldn't. I don't know. I mean, I, I just it's more I have fond memories as a yeah. kid of seeing these things that you think about now. And you're like, oh, yeah, I guess they wouldn't do that now. You know, well, a lot of it like Bill Burr talks about intent a lot. And so obviously 
take Ching Change. So I lived in San Francisco, the largest Asian population, and right. saw a guy in a yard, and he had a little leash around a, a, a chicken, like standing <laughs> in his front yard. You know, didn't imagine it. And then the flight of fancy didn't deal in any stereotypes or tropes. It was this specific Asian gentleman who came to America with a pet chicken shop, but he was in love with them. So he would try to talk people out. So no one thinks, oh yeah, they, I've seen that before. That's a cliche. Yeah. No, 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 that's an abstraction. So love is coming. How about that chicken? Oh, you don't want that chicken. Why? Chicken make a lousy house pad. He think he like dog, but he not dog. So that I don't, I'm not ashamed of it. I No, no. Right. Just having a white guy playing an Asian guy it's fine. I mean, you know, I, I get that. Like we should have we, someone else could have played that. I would have written it for them because it was just fun to sing. And then he sings my fair lady songs at the end. So it was so whimsical. I think Dennis showed it to they're in Greece on a boat somewhere. And Dennis somehow got Wi-Fi or somehow had it and showed it to Tom Hanks a couple of years ago. And he just rolled up in a ball of, of laughing so hard he couldn't function because it's not that it's that funny. It's just the idea that it existed, Ching Change. But what I will say is that uh, we did it like four times. And the fourth time, um, we we talked all about it being a stereotype. And Ching oh. Change was very sad. That was, was very sad. Candace Bergen said, well, you're kind of a stereotype. I am? So it was all that. Uh, the most interesting thing about that story is that uh, Dennis got his phone to work. Uh, to show a clip, uh, much less in, in Greece, you know, the idea that he could show something to, to Tom Hanks in Greece. Uh, this, this is coming from somebody who's still actively trying to help him figure out how to get back on Facebook. Yeah, uh, but, where's uh, that uh, Athens password, honey? What is, what is it? Aristotle dash seven or something like that? Uh, no, Tommy here or something. Yeah. But, it's uh, interesting because the the, uh, the the sketches that I referenced, no problem getting them on the air then. But then it was a very different time. Like I, I vividly, I haven't seen it in decades, but I remember the cold open after Liberace dies. It's just Phil as Liberace at the piano and he's playing. And then he says, if you think the censors will let us say anything, you're crazy. And then they, you know, he just does the live from New York. And, you know, there was the big deal about the, the peanut sketch where you guys are at the nudist colony and you say, yeah. I don't know, 34 times or whatever it is, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, you know, and it, it, it's it's interesting to think about, like, what you could do then, but couldn't. And then, you know, what you can get away with now. But then it's like, what areas are you going to go into? What, what is happening now in the world of comedy that in 2050, it'll be like, whoa, no, 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 no. <laughs> you know, where is that? Because, yeah, you can't judge the previous generation because uh, you're never an island on Saturday Night Live. I had producers and writers and network people and censorship people and cast members. And nobody yeah. said you ought not be doing that. You know, yeah, there's right. naivety. You know, I never wanted to do stand up and have anybody, uh, either a woman or a minority, anybody in the back quietly crying. Like I never had. I wanted to just make everybody laugh. So it's like if this is making you cry, like really sad, then you yeah. know, I would stop. But I just had no no connection. It was uh, thirty five years ago or something. So yeah, when, no, right, exactly. It's uh, uh, you know, and then in terms of uh, you know, I was talking about getting things on the show. I mean, I think that what a lot of people don't realize is that there can be a lot of politics to it. You know, we're talking about the recurring characters, but getting new stuff. You know, it's like, well, who wrote it? Who has, you know, enough stuff in there? Uh, I, I remember 
uh, I didn't have to sign an NDA when I was an intern, but I remember that uh, Jim Brewer had a sketch that he had written that he was in that he tried to get on a couple of times and it, it would get cut after dress or after the read through. And then a uh, uh, well-known director now, uh, Adam McKay, wrote a sketch that he felt was similar and then got on the air and he was like livid. Brewer was. And then, you know, and then, you know, another week, something of his got cut so that Tenacious D could perform. I think it was like the debut of Tenacious D. And that was when I was like, I feel like this guy probably won't be back next year because he'd had enough at that point. But I could that like just as somebody who grew up watching the show, like really, you know, keeping your head down and not staring and trying to not like, you know, watch the cast when they're angry. But you'd see it happen and you go like, oh, my God, this is like a struggle that you have no idea about if you're not in this room, you know? Yeah, I mean, I always would say to young comedians just, uh, you know, who would get into the drama of the stand-up scene. I should be headlining that guy. I go, well, you do you get a standing ovation every night? No. Yeah. <laughs> right. There's no crying in baseball. There's, there's no complaining at SNL. You, yeah. you have to go in with gratitude. You can be ding, but never publicly. Yeah. What about me? I'm not getting what I want. No one, no one likes that. I, well, I had some really fun, organic alliances with people with Kevin Nealon and Hans and Franz and that trundled along. But once the audience hooked it, that we were delusional, paranoid people who were fighting imaginary enemies and threatening them physically. (laughs) You'd think they were going to lift weights and be really strong. It was none of that. If you doubt us, we could come to your house and stretch your flab into the shape of a ladder so you could crawl down in the sewer because that's why losers live. To me, it's just like a song. And that's why I went falsetto with it over time. And then I had Mike Myers with Wayne's World, which was always toward the end of the show in the first few times. Party on, you know, all that. And then that hooked. And with Phil, uh, it was Carson and he was playing Ed McMahon. And that that was might have been my favorite. I don't know, one up there, because that was the only time I didn't care if the audience laughed. I, 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 I wanted them to laugh, but Johnny was so, I was so into his rhythm. And for those of you at home who don't know, and then I always had Phil there. You're correct, sir. So, um, you know, the, if you just try to play well with others, there's some luck to it. And then with Robert Smigel, we had Regis. I came in doing Regis and he goes, let's do something, work together on that McLaughlin group. Um, there was other reoccurring things that were really cooking. Yeah. And then all the political stuff, Bush. Right. And, yeah. and because of those McLaughlin group sketches, the rest of my life, I was never to hear, I was never able to hear the name Jack Germond without laughing, <laughs> you know. Wrong. So that again is just a, a musicality to it. But there was a time toward like after I'd been there four years from 90 to 93, we're like, it was sort of crazy with Perot came about and, and then Al Franken is a great ally in the room, you know? And so he loves political comedy. So I was working with him and Jim Downey, not going to do it, all that stuff. And then Wayne's world was coming up on the outside and Hans and Franz got a movie deal. So it was almost too much kind of coming toward me at that time, but it was, it was pretty thrilling, thrilling three years for sure. Right. No. And I think that makes sense. And yeah, I mean, Wayne's world starts off as a sketch, like you said, towards the end of the show. And then it's like, you know, then Aerosmith are in there and then there's uh, filming something with Madonna and, you know, the sketch gets so big, you know, at one point that, uh, yeah, there were, uh, yeah, I know there's so many SNL movies that didn't happen, you know, and uh, I guess, you know, Hans and Franz 
being one of them. But uh, I, I can see that it's uh, it could be tough to negotiate. I do want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the, the political stuff, because it's interesting if you're able to see, to me, one of the best debate sketches is you as H.W. Bush when he ran the first time with uh, Lovitz as Michael Dukakis. Yeah, you know? yeah. And it's it's great. They're like great impressions. And, and there's, uh, you know, there's the Lovitz has the great like, I can't believe I'm losing to this guy. Yeah. And then, you know, he has like the little lift to bring him up a little higher. Yeah. And it's stuff like that. And it's so funny to think like, oh, my God, John spent all that time developing a Michael Dukakis impression that he didn't get to do with, much with. And I kind of remember uh, you know, the, the cast before you guys, a couple casts before you guys, this guy, Gary Kroger was on and he like did a bit on what was mm-hmm. called SNL news at the time. And he's like, I, I worked really hard on my, uh, my Walter Mondale impression because I figured I'd be doing it for four years. You know, and that was basically was the joke of, you know, there was no reason to learn that Walter Mondale impression, but the, uh, the George HW Bush impression you know, as he goes on as president, you get more things. Cause like the beginning, it's a lot of like thousand points of light. And yeah. No different thing. Yeah. Didn't have a hook. Yeah. It's just, it's just kind of whiny and flat Texas yeah. flat or whatever. And that was it. Yeah. Yeah. Although in that sketch, the great thing is that uh, it, it's like, he just kept thinking that his time would be over. Yeah. And, and then Jan yeah, always yeah. Oh, no, sir, you have 40 more seconds. Really yeah. good writing. And yeah. that was that just carried and and, and you referenced him. I mean, Jim Downey is responsible for probably like most of the the best debate sketches that and people know ever, including the years later, the uh, the W. Bush yeah. and uh, in Al Gore, the strategy lockbox sketch. I mean, Jim Downey, like all that comes out of his head, you know, and uh, Jim Downey yeah. has a really good um, rhythmic ability he he will go for you know strategy you know that's like a little song yeah. and i put it and he teased out that lock box and it kept kept working it lock yeah. box is like you couldn't think of a better phrase for uh, an al gore impression lock box so yeah he's great i had great people around me um but yeah the that would be me with friends like if i did an, a goofy and impression of the water polo coach in high school it would get i would wind it further and further and abstract it because i was in cold openings and lauren really liked it the character was working i kept extenuating everything and it was the only time i could sort of improvise because it was a lockdown shot right if i go oh, yeah. like, I do it dad out there in that area i get a laugh i do it again that whole area i do it again you know so that that became uh I appreciate it more 30 years later because I, I saw when he passed something in the New York Times, I clicked on it. It was like, damn, it's like eight and a half minutes in one as George Bush Sr. with props. Um, and it was great. I mean, it really killed. So it was fun to see years later and go, maybe it didn't suck. <laughs> right. And then, of course, you know, when you have things like Perot, I think it was on Larry King the first time he does the can it finish. You have to see that and go like, oh, my God, thank God I got something new to, you know, to squeeze in there. And it's like, I mean, he probably only said it once, but a lot of times because of the impression, you know, I mean, it's like it's like Sarah Palin, you know, Tina does her and says, I can see Russia from my house. And then people literally attribute that to the actual Sarah Palin, you know, so it's like 
and rhythmically extending something that's coming from a real place so it's not made up but can i finish one time you're going to talk all over me can i finish one time can i finish one he became james brown but somehow it works so it's so silly and so abstract that once you get a hold of that as a comedian and you know the audience is attached to it then you're in an area that i love because there's no joke there's no punchline it's just purely character and rhythm can i finish one time or you're going to talk all over me love that song love it that's as good as not god that you know same kind of thing that's what uh, i live for <laughs> uh you know and, and when we first started talking i was talking about how your audition had the robin leach impression which i know you did on the show a few times and it's funny to think about you know these great spot on impressions that there's not really much call for anymore and then you know sometimes like when somebody passes away uh, you know, there's always the appropriate mourning period for the loss of human life. But at yeah. some point, you must have the moment where you're like, all right, I guess uh, I guess I have to, uh, you know, put that on the back burner for a while. But I get but I mean, it's not like I, I you know, you, you can't do the Jimmy Stewart now. So at some point they come back. Right. Well, Jimmy Stewart of the old timey movie stars is the only one that extends now because the young people, a guy came up to me after a gig once goes, hey, you did the It's a Wonderful Life, dude. <laughs> so when you have like it's Will Ferrell and Elf, when you have a Christmas classic, this just yeah. travels over generations. So um, but yeah, I sometimes I'll sign people off as Regis just to visit Regis, like on the Zoom, like with William Shatner. I got him just crying with laughter. We got to say go, but William Shatner, who doesn't love him? Captain Cook himself, you know, he's all over the place. He's got Emmys everywhere you can see. We got to, you know, it was just the the charm of Regis and that rhythm, that old time kind of Groucho Marx sped up, sort of. Pick a cigarette one, divide a duck among you. Pick a cigarette one, divide a duck among you. Pick a cigarette one, divide a duck among you. Everybody say. And also, it's very Trump, too. I, it was Trump and Brando were the, or sorry, Brando and Regis got me to Trump initially, you know. Oh, I, I, yeah, I, that's right. I feel like I've heard you kind of explain Probably that, that sometimes it's like combining a couple bring you to, uh, I can see that's funny. You're talking about the Paul McCartney baseline earlier, but uh, Regis is kind of the, the Trump baseline. You know, you, you kind of have that and then you can add on to it. Right? Yeah, I mean, now I'm just doing, you know, James Austin Johnson. I was sitting with interviewing him for an hour and he's doing his whole little throwing in these uh, guttural things. So when you're doing that, it's a whole nother rhythm. He's done, everybody was doing this, but then you go down here and you go there and you know where we're going. We're going to do a lot of it. And people are saying they don't want to do it, but we're going to do it. And we, uh, my my Trump book now is that there is no subject matter. It's just rhythm. And it sounds like he's pitching right. family vacation. Have you heard that one? I haven't. We're going to be going a lot of places. Let me tell you, we're going to be doing things like you wouldn't believe. And we're going to do it. We're going to do a lot of it because we know how to. And everybody knows we're going to do it and they're going to see it. Some people say, no, we shouldn't. But we're going anyway. We're going to go there. And he never tells his family what they're doing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, I, I, when uh, when Dennis's podcast ended was uh, right, uh, right around the uh, 2020 election. So you were still kind of noodling around with Biden. Well, we've had him around. I mean, obviously, the guy's been around for 
50 years, but he's been in the limelight, you know, so much more these last three years. What have you noticed about him as time has gone on? You know, the big thing was like malarkey was big early on when he ran, but uh, now he must give you so much more to work with, right? Yeah, the early song was just whispery grandpa saving the nation from sort of the, the, uh, the trauma of Trump, you know, just the energy around Trump. And so this, uh, it was always, it was kind of like my father, my father, God rest his soul, lost his job, lost his job. No joke. I'm not kidding around here. That was the first thing. He'd say something that clearly isn't a joke and say no joke. That was in those days. And the people, you know, and, and always the list. Number one, the one part. Number two, what the guy said. Number three, you know the drill. Come on, folks. And then he'd admonish you for not knowing what the fuck he was talking about. Come on, folks. This isn't rocket science. Come on, let's get real. So that was that early puppety guy. And then after... A while he would do a patronizing whisper like my dad used to do. The rich don't, guess what? They don't pay their fair share. And then he would go to the yell because they don't know how. We're going to pay the fair share. We know how to pay the fair share. So he's still doing that. I mean, at the State of the Union, that was the loudest I'd ever heard him. He was. Yeah, that's that's the loudest he's ever been, I think. Because we know we're going to take care of people and senior citizens. The only thing I do on this is I always end up with one phrase. He finds his way to this one phrase. That's what people go, you know, we're going to do it. We switch private, private, private secure band. So he always says private secure band at the end. Yeah. But uh, it's uh, it, yeah, it's fun to, I guess, uh, just be able to sort of watch those things as as they develop. Is there an impression that you had to do on the show that you felt like I got to go do it. It's on the air where you've just felt like you never actually even maybe did it more than once. You're just like, I never really felt like it sounded like them, but I had to go out there anyway. Well, yeah. Sometimes in the, you know, early political campaigns, you'd be given some congressman or something and you knew it was a one-off and the, the audience has to know the voice too. That's why it's difficult. Now there's so much fracturing, you, you know, that you can, you know, they, they know the political people, but, you know, right. it's not like everybody knows everybody who's famous. Um, the great thing about SNL is they would force you to learn people, you know, we, we need, we need you to do Rain Man by Wednesday, you know, that kind of thing, sort of thing. So that it, it forces you because honestly, trying to learn impressions when you don't have a clue is very painful. And you have to do it alone in a room because when you don't have it at all, you literally don't. You don't. Yeah. So all I do if I'm trying is listen over and over and over and over and over and over and over again and then hope something hits me, you know. But I I, I don't have any technique other than just keep listening. <laughs> right. And, and you know, before the, the heyday of the Internet, uh, you know, when I interned there it was uh, 1998 and, uh, you know, there there weren't really computers in those offices. And there were like companies that taped everything. And you'd have to like as an intern, it's like, OK, you have to go get a tape uh, of this from MSNBC because Daryl needs to Daryl Hammond needs to learn this character. And it was like, you know, now if you're learning something, it's like, OK, let me find, you know, thousands of hours of video and watch them on my phone. But it was also like, you know, I mean, Franken had a Paul Songus impression that I, I, I remember seeing him do on the show. I, I don't know if it was spot on or not, you know, but it was just like, Funny you know, it didn't character. even in 1992, it didn't matter. You know, I'd always wanted to. And I, I just I'm very just I'm distracted in a good way with so many things going on. But John Malkovich 
is such a great voice. There's a subtle little lane he's in. It's very easy to go to John Travolta accidentally. Can't you tell that he's lying? But there is an impression there that's great. So that would be someone pushing me to, to do that. I had it one night in a hotel room in New York, and I, I had it beautifully. Like I had it, and then I lost it. <laughs> right. And then when you have somebody like Travolta, of course, there's like, okay, you can do like sort of the the modern day Travolta, but people are going to kind of want to hear, you know, Vinnie Barbarino or Saturday Night Fever Travolta. You know, it's like, yeah. it, it's like when uh, when uh, Norm Macdonald would do Burt Burt Reynolds. Yeah. Uh, the, I remember this was actually when I was. I think this is when I was there. Uh, they, uh, you know, they tried to have him in the, uh, the outfit from Boogie Nights, like the, the old Bert, and they did that in dress rehearsal. And then by the time they did the show, he was dressed like smoking the bandit Bert, because it's just like, no, nah, people just kind of want him to look like that. Yeah. And then and, the gum and the offhanded kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, just like the yeah. smoking the bandit character, basically. Yeah, my yeah. my favorite of those was uh, the, they did these uh, outtakes of Star Wars auditions, and it was Burt Reynolds uh, with the Darth Vader helmet, and he won't put it on. And he's like, "So uh, this uh, Darth Vader guy, what kind of car does he drive?" And he's chewing gum the whole time, you know, and just in that like, yeah, that, like Norm delivers. <laughs> Norm, <laughs> so, Norm was a secretly or not so secretly really good impressionist. You know, he did a great take on Letterman, David Letterman. Yeah. And uh, his Bert is just a great take. I mean, you know, it's like there's super accuracy, but if it's a funny take and it's it's enough of familiarity that okay, we know who he's doing and it's funny. Usually, you tease out one thing and just work that. You know, um, sometimes I'll go for decades without doing impression. I was hanging out with Conan and Mike Sweeney, and somehow Henry Fonda came up. Oh wow! Okay, because <laughs> they were going to have Jane Fonda on the show. And I had done Henry Fonda in about 25 years. And all of a sudden, all I could do was talk like Henry Fonda. I just never thought you liked me. That's all. You know, and so that was like, wow, I love doing that voice. I love that rhythm of Henry Fonda. I ran into yeah. a guy at Conan's place, happened to be Conan's place, Matt Powers. And he has a haircut. He looked kind of like um, the guy from Scooby-Doo that Casey Kasem would voice. Casey, Shaggy. Come on. Shaggy. Like, Scoob, let's make like a banana and split. I don't think I like this. You know, just Casey Kasem with his throat catching. So I forget a lot of people. I don't really pursue it that much. I, I do miss riffing in voices, which I'm, I had a podcast before this called Fantastic. I just did a homemade one where I would do long form riffing. I do kind of miss that, which I don't do on fly, but it's really fun to bounce off spade because he, he really makes me laugh he's so funny um but that that's one thing i kind of miss long form riffing right yeah no i could uh, i could imagine and if you're doing it with like say lovitz or somebody who you know they have their their own you know basket full of impressions um well as we uh, start to wind down here uh it, it's a, a good time to ask the question of you know, <laughs> you you did SNL for uh, for a while, but uh, that you were there for a turnover. You know, pretty much everybody you started with uh, was gone. At what point do you decide? Okay, I think uh, I've done enough here. I, you know, Lovitz told me when I talked to him last year, he actually wanted to stay a little bit longer. He wanted to do a movie. So, uh, and at that point, you know, Lauren was like, "Well, 
I'm not going to do the, the the warn to you. I just realized, but he's like, you know, he's like, well, you know, uh, you know, Danny and John always came back when they were doing movies. And so, but then within a few years, they started letting people miss shows. But uh, so he, he left and then he would come back because they'd ask him to, then they'd make fun of the fact that he would be back all the time. He's like, what do you, you wanted to stay? You asked me to come back. So for you, Kind of watching some of that stuff. Uh, at what point do do you think like okay, I think uh, I think I've uh, done as much as I can do here. Well, I I could have I felt like I could have gone on for another five years, creative. Okay. Yeah, but I'm just basing the assumption that new people come along. I had a team. I had Al. I had uh, Robert Smigel. But um, so much had come together in '90 to '93. I'd reached so much heat that they were really trying to me to take over from Letterman. He was leaving. That was like right. a giant year of trying to figure out whether to do that. They were throwing a massive amount of money at me. They're throwing me movies at me. I had Tucson that I wrote with Bob Odenkirk, a comedy western for me and Lovitz, and Hans and Franz: The Girly Man Dilemma, which we're going to be reading with Conan and Smigel and Neilan. We're going to read segments of of the script uh, that we wrote. Uh, oh, that's great. Four of us wrote it. And then we're going to put it on team Coco and podcast, his podcast and, and talk nice. about it. So I basically got so hot that I had too much to, you know, right. Because Wayne's world had hit and we were going to do the sequel. And that was like, a that could have been just that, but all right. the political impressions. So and when I left, I was the longest cast member to ever be there. It was seven years. Now, the very next day, Phil be beat my record. But right. when I left, other people, you know, three years, three and a half, Bill, Billy Crystal, one year. But yeah. I, I really feel like I'd reached sort of a peak and I had so much coming at me. I think if I had less heat, I probably would have done that a few more years. But I almost did the talk show. That Conan yeah, had, I was going to ask you. It was a, it was one of the things I wanted to make sure I asked you. How close was it to actually happening that you would have taken over late night from Letterman, the show that Conan would really, go on? Really close. My wife wanted me to do it. The network wanted me to do it. Lorne, if you want to do that, fine. But you know, I don't know what you know. He wanted me to stay on the show, which I totally understood. Right. Um, it was very very close. I just uh, you know. Had like a six month old and a two year old at the time. I didn't know how I could do four hours of TV every week, right? And and do the kid. You know, I I wasn't sure how that was going to work for me. Um, but people do it, you know. But that was a little bit like, um, it was very close. It was very close. Yeah. The only thing great about that, I would have had Smigel and Louis C.K. and Conan writing and producing for me. <laughs> so you'd have like you know, a really good staff. I, I, I realized more later how important it is because it's so much energy to, to generate material. And I like to generate material, but then if you have other people, you could, you could come up with an idea, you know, like Smigel was like that. He was the best like that for me, you know? Yeah. And, and I mean, Smigel is, you know, I, I've talked about, you know, the way that he approaches things is he puts so much thought into it. You know, he, I, I remember once I, I also uh, interned on Conan Show. I remember once hearing Smigel explain why Triumph, the Intel comic dog, has that accent. And he, it's just very simple. He's like, well, because I, I think that dogs are all immigrants, so they should all talk with an accent. I'm like, 
it's like brilliant. It's so simple. It's like to the point, you know, and, uh, but you know, you're talking about great staffs. Uh, so I'd be remiss at not pointing out the, the crazy lineup that you had for the Dana Carvey show, the, the prime oh, yes, time that show. show. Yeah. yeah. That show, which now available, on, still available on DVD or however you find things. The these documentary days. on Hulu. What about yeah. It? Uh, and I mean, because you mentioned, I think Louis was a writer on that as well, but it was also Stephen, it was Colbert, it was Steve Carell. I'm forgetting somebody, I'm sure, but. Uh, Robert Carlock was in some yeah. sketches and wrote Dino Stepanopoulos, who's this brilliant writer. Uh, we had an all-star, you know, Charlie Kaufman was writing for us, who writes all right. the brilliant, bizarre movies. We had an all-star cast and all-star writing. We just didn't have a studio, so we had to tape it on Sunday late afternoon <laughs> right. studio space. So it was, it was, it was, it was another train wreck. It was, you know, on prime time and had no chance. And um, that was just didn't follow my instincts. It happens. Right. It was on, uh, it was on after home improvement. Uh, on ABC. Which, yeah. You know. And it's, it's interesting that you it's interesting that it was ABC because uh, I've heard uh, the director, Kevin Smith, talk about how he got to do an animated version of Clerks and the UPN network was going to do, I don't know, 13 or 22 guaranteed on the air. Then ABC came to him and was like, well, we'll do six and maybe we'll air some of them. And he's like, oh, this is ABC. And he, his advice to himself in retrospect is, you know what? Sometimes don't go for the brass ring. You know, just take the, the 12 on the air from UPN because then you get to actually do the thing you want instead of have the thing that turns out, uh, you know. The, well, the, I would, the, you know, one. I allowed myself to be a little bit manipulated. That was my fault. I, I decided yeah. after two weeks of thinking, let's do it on HBO. Yeah. So we can do 10, take a break, do 10, you know, that kind of thing. There was no live streaming and all that, but um, other people wanted it with the big budget of ABC. Uh, some people in managerial positions had deals at ABC that needed to deliver a show. So there was a lot of other stuff going on. And, you know, so that was just me not following my instincts. Right. Yeah. But in the end um, of the day, now that it's considered brilliant, it was great that it, it gets all these accolades now. And, and Colbert and Carell credit me. And I go, you would have been discovered. And uh, his wife, Nancy, goes, no, he really needed that at that time. <laughs> it was like his wife, Nancy, who also was on SNL, you know, it's uh, so she, yeah, you she knows how great he is. And the fact that no matter how talented you are, you can just timing, you could slip through the cracks you know, and hopefully you're committed to having a career and then you have this other style of career. Carell is going to have a career no matter yeah. what. But um, just the way that show got him to Jon Stewart and then got him to the office, you know, uh, is really satisfying. It's fun. I don't even think it's part of my resume as talent scout or anything. But right. uh, <laughs> to me, it became really clear at Colbert, the two Steves, we called them. Um, and I didn't get any pushback at all. Of course, Robert loved them and Louie. We were the three kind of deciding um, factors and they're great. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, no, it's got to be. It's got to be a good feeling of, uh, you know, finding people that uh, obviously go on to, you know, have that level of success. Not to, not to uh, you know, give short shrift to, uh, you know, it, it's not having that show, no doubt, gave you other opportunities, things that you were able to go on and, and do, it, you know, instead of having to do what yeah, I mean, two shows for a network. 
In the end of the day, I mean, you know, some what animated me was different things. I mean, because well, I was a, I was conflicted within myself. Like one is at that age, I had a Disney face. Two is they kind of would see the church slate and not realize there's subversive things in there in a sense. And yeah. so I think I confused Bob Iger and ABC. Like, okay, if anyone could do primetime, it's this guy. You got Carol Burnett like ability and all that. So that was the confusion there. Um, I never, but I, I didn't, you know, you, fame comes with it, but I, I, I didn't pursue it or think about it. I don't really like it. I'm kind of a shut in for a celebrity. I like being home. I mean, um, so there's a lot of reasons, but the fact that I'm, I just kept going and I'm doing stuff now and I'm getting very well paid and feeling very creative at this point on the planet when you have data and you you too as well when life goes on the captain of the football team in high school if I could just be him you know and then that fades away so yeah I know exactly it's uh the key for what you're saying is that you're happy with what you're doing and I think you've you've been very uh, upfront about talking about it. You know, you had some very serious health problems, which obviously that became a focus for a while. Uh, but it, at the same time, you know, once that and I'm sorry, I, I read for the first time that I guess when you were in there for your surgery, uh, Sinatra was in the room next to you. It, it, well, I when he passed I passed away in the room next to it checked out that they thought that it was reblocked. I was at Cedar Sinai and on the floor that night, Frank died. And I remember when he, they came in, I, I said, who came in? They go, Frank Sinatra did to the, you know, ICU or, you know, cath lab, they call it. Yeah. So right. he died in my arms, basically. I've had a lot of weird things happen to me like everyone else. But my point is, is that wisdom comes with data. And then later on, you see that Oh, those two people went to war together with lawsuits, and now they're both dead. It's just you you start to kind of relax into this whole idea of it. So the idea of like, I could have been more famous or that gets sillier and sillier as just the battlefield of life, the glorious shit show that this is. And nobody can go through it unless you're a hermit and not have some pain. I was right. in therapy for five years. <laughs> well, what I love is uh, whenever uh, you and Dennis would reconnect as guests on his various shows, and my understanding is that uh, when you guys just talk privately on the phone, you always start off with the, you told me it would get easier, you know, like that's, yeah. that was always the beginning, you know. Dennis always and, loved that. You told me life would get easier, and that yeah. always made him laugh. I still leave that message for him. You told me, you said, you. I remember the day. Carving, it's tough now, but as you go forward in life, everything is smooth. Gets easy as pie. Trust the, me. The uh, the advice that I got from him was uh, to a room of us, which was, uh, "Hit your knees, boys. Thank God that you're not me." <laughs> like every, he's like every day. Thank God that you're not me. But I don't know how. I don't think he meant it in you know as literal as that. Because it would usually come after he was like really sort of like overanalyzing and micromanaging just things in his life that probably didn't matter. And that's when he's like, yeah, just hit your knees every day. This isn't in your head, you know. Trust me. I mean, you know, Dennis and I had our backgrounds in our own nature. We seem like opposites, but we relate to each other in that way. And the fist fight yeah. that you have in your head all day, Mike Myers has it overthinkers you could call it or you know one of the happiest people i know is just a very simple man 
And he's just a guy who talks like this and everything's literal, you know. Today I was out riding my bike, you know, and it got real windy all of a sudden. I couldn't believe it. And this is no exaggeration. He's a lovely person, but he really is able to grasp the moment, you know. Yeah. And Dennis has such a giant brain that he's seen all of it and the folly yeah. of it. In Christ's sakes, Carvey, this business will chew you up and spit you out in a nanosecond, okay? Nobody cares about you. I mean, he got mad at me because I turned down all these commercials and he was completely right. You know? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't believe that he's he turned down any commercials. I mean, he always told me that uh, one of his favorite moments on his HBO show was when Vince Vaughn sat down uh, and the first thing out of his mouth was, which one of the, your commercials is your favorite? Is it the 1010-220 or the M&M's commercial? You know, just Vince Vaughn, like at that point, at the peak of like pulling this, just uh, giving him a little, you know, making fun of him for the commercials. And he's just like, he's just, la Dennis laughed so hard in that clip because he's like, yeah, I mean, whatever. It's like, now it's, it's a paycheck. New agents. And they said, it doesn't matter. Anyone can do it. You want to do a game show? It doesn't matter. There's no yeah. commercials. None of it means anything anymore. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's a hundred million too late. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Yeah, a lot I mean, of you have the nineties. What did I think I was, Bob Dylan? You know, <laughs> the, I mean, the, the the coolest uh, guy in rock and roll right now, Dave Grohl, just did a Super Bowl commercial, and it's like no, there's no thought about like, hey, is that going to be bad? No, it doesn't matter. Um, the thing that I want to kind of end on is one of my favorite interactions from you and Dennis as he's talked about this was. Uh, you know, obviously sitting on that uh, weekend update desk and uh, he was never a fan of the grumpy old man character. Me watching at home, I was always a big fan of the grumpy old man character. Uh, but uh, I know that uh, he said that maybe it was in rehearsal, but he leans in. He's like, this is going to eat shit. And then that sort of motivated you to like go like, oh, watch, watch what I can do with the grumpy old man. And um, if uh, I, I, I I went for more than an hour without doing any requests, but if, if grumpy old man could somehow wish a happy 10th anniversary to my podcast, the black cast uh, on the way out, I would, it would mean a lot to me. David. It is one of the best podcasts you can ever see the black cast. We're watching it. We got no Wi-Fi. We can't hear a thing, but we love it. <laughs> Sorry. It's giving me a cough. <clears throat> Um, oh. Dennis had seen the cue cards and just thought, Christ's sake, I just, you may not, you got nothing. There's no jokes. There's nothing. And then he said later on, he goes, you figured out some kind of mathematical equation in your skull, some kind of musicality thing. But the funny thing about that was the guy was so long for the olden days, even if it was miserable, they loved it because it just wasn't yeah. We yeah. loved it. We couldn't get enough of it. It's it's like got sort of the same sort of blueprint as in the uh, the character that I like that uh, Lovitz and Tom Hanks would do the two loser guys like hello yeah. and the girls walk by and he's like and goodbye you know things like and my hairline is not helping one bit you know it's just sort of like building on in like oh yeah these guys should be the most depressing guys but they seem relatively happy and grumpy old man wasn't that grumpy he's pretty happy you know so it was the, the, it was abstract he goes we didn't have flame retardant sleepwear like who do we have <laughs> we if you went to bed smoking you woke up engulfed in flames what do you do i'm a flaming corpse and that's the way it was and we liked it we loved it <clears throat> so that was the turn of it and i think bob oderkirk came up with that part of it you know it was very funny
Yeah. Well, uh, Dana, I uh, could talk to you all day, but I won't do that to you. And uh, I'm glad it's like having the Beatles do twist and shout at the end of the set. I had you do a grumpy old man at the end because it gave you a little bit of a cough. So uh, it'll be perfect. Uh, But uh, good luck with the whole thing. And, you know, here's to another 500, you know, get you to a thousand, you know, which is more than 500 last time I checked. (laughs) All right, yeah, Paul. Always got to do Paul. <laughs> now you always have to do Paul, and uh, yeah, like at Christmas time this year, they reran the uh, the global warming Christmas special where Paul comes in and he's doing this thing about like trying to explain global warming, and uh, I love like Paul taking big, big you know ideas and just sort of like, because then what have you got, you know? And it's just like very simple, you know, and. Uh, uh, but, that, uh, that's that's this humble Liverpudlian thing. The way he deals with being Paul McCartney is just you know, just better you know. Well, God, you're the Beatles. Sorry, I'm so nervous. Well, you know, we we we'd sit down for a plonk, and look at each other, <laughs> and we plonk back and forth, you know, like a mirror looking at each other, and we just plonk for a while. That's how we came up with Day Tripper, you know, just plonking. So it's just he 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 wants it to be humble and fun and easy, and it's just so funny because the songs are genius and a guy's talking like that. It's just funny. It'll always be funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's always funny to me. And uh, I always enjoy uh, anytime getting the chance to talk to you when we would be doing those interviews with Dennis, uh, you would call me like the day before and you'd be trying bits out with me on the phone for half an hour. I'm like, he knows this is just me on this call. Right. And it was like, I'm getting like this, this private interaction with, uh, with Dana Carvey. He's like, you know, testing out voices. Uh, I always appreciated that. And uh, for you to help us celebrate 10 years really means a lot. Uh, people should find the fly on the wall podcast, uh, wherever uh, podcasts are found. And of course, just at Dana Carvey on Twitter and uh, Facebook and Instagram as well, I believe. Yes. Yeah. I don't do too much of it, but I'm posting lately. It's fun. Yeah. Right. All exactly. Right. Appreciate well, it. Thank you so much, uh, Dana Carvey. I I really appreciate it. Okay, peace out. God bless. (laughs) Well, I have to say, in more than a decade of doing the Black Cast, that was one of the biggest thrills. That was so much fun for a huge SNL nerd like me to get that in-depth with a living legend like Dana Carvey. Please follow us at Black Cast. That's on Twitter and Instagram. And you know what? If you subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Black Cast, B-L-A-D-T-C-I-S-T, you'll be able to watch the video version of that conversation with Dana. Because we recorded it on Zoom, there's a glorious video version for you to watch, as there are for most episodes of the Blackcast, which there will be video streaming live next Monday, March 13th at 1 p.m. Pacific. We'll stream our annual Oscars wrap-up show with myself and Christian Toto of Hollywood and Toto. So come back for that, please. And in the meantime, in between time, If you learned nothing else this episode, it's that a chicken makes a lousy house pet. Thank you for listening to The Bladcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Bladcast. That's B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. You can also subscribe to the audio version wherever podcasts are found. Like The Bladcast on Facebook, follow at Bladcast on Twitter and Instagram, and of course, the man responsible for what you just heard is on Twitter and Instagram at Christian DMZ. I'm Farad Muhammad, and if you want me to voice your podcast intro, you can find me at Twitter and Instagram at F-A-R-D 
M-U-H-A-M-M-A-D. We will see you next time on the Bladcast. No one's going to see this anyway, so I can admit this here, right? Well, this has been the Bladcast. I am your host. <laughs> you can find me at Christian DMZ. Jeff Duray, not on Twitter. The Bladcast. Welcome to the stream. Who are you? One of the best podcasts you can ever see, the Bladcast. Whoop-dee-doo, we're watching it. We got no Wi-Fi. We can't hear a thing, but we love it. Go watch the Bladcast with me and Carl. It was a great show, if I remembered it. But if I was on, it must have been great, right? Give myself a bill. Good luck with the whole thing. And, you know, here's to another 500. Get you to 1,000, you know, which is more than 500. Last time I checked. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. We're closed.